Coming up in Need to Know, we review I'm Not Yelling by Elizabeth Liba as part of the Warded Webster Better You Book Club. In all the fields, it's April Fool's Day and we got tricks. And gotta do it's another birthday for Isaiah so yes he's about to be way too much for this show because he's an Aries the podcast that encourages you to know feel and do to live your best life this is Ward and Webster Hello, Bianca. Um, is reading fundamental, as RuPaul always says? <laughs> it or, is. You know. And I, I just, I don't, I don't. Oh my God, the dog. Hold on. <laughs> you know, I got these uh, pets out here in the country and they just, they just don't know how to act when I am trying to be uh, a full professional grown up. How are you this week? <sighs> That's a very good question. I am um, okay, busy. Like I didn't realize that I would be so busy during this uh, here sabbatical that I'm <laughs> that I am taking. <laughs> um, but let's let's hold on the letter. Uh, this episode of Ward and Webster was brought to you by the letter E for Ella Fitzgerald. So I what a what an icon what a what a class act I listened to um, I got a memory pop up on my little facey book that was reminding me something that I had posted when I was pregnant and I would uh, when I was on bed rest I would put headphones on my belly so that Noah could hear some jams um, and Ella Fitzgerald <laughs> that is so sweet. <laughs> Ella, I used to play Ella Fitzgerald for lovers. <laughs> now, that's interesting. Now, did you not use Madonna because you were afraid that Noah would come out gay? <laughs> is, that why, is that why you didn't pick Madge for that assignment? Because he could have been just like me. <laughs> <gasps> oh, and we need more Isaiah Webster's. The thirds, the fourths, the fifths. <laughs> you know, even though that's a really sweet story, I'm this is the first time I'm ever going to have to disagree with one of your letter choices because E Ooh. should have been for Edward. Because Edward. today, <laughs> today's Ed's birthday. So happy birthday, babe. Oh, <laughs> he was so born good. on April 1st and today's April 1st. I just like, come on, April fools. I think so happy birthday Ed! may all of your birthday wishes and dreams and birthday blessings <laughs> as my mother would say flourish <laughs> you deserve how are you did I ask how you are I'm great Ed and I are actually getting ready to go to New York to celebrate his birthday and mine mm. uh, this upcoming week um, we're going to be, you know, doing the things in New York City, visiting some of his family in upstate New York. So I'm going to go to Rochester for the first time. Very excited about that. And it's nice to just take a week off from work and get away from those people, you know, and just <laughs> live life, live life. I can't even picture you in upstate New York. I've never know. been. So, well, that's not true. I have been to... Albany, I guess that would be considered upstate New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so I mm -hmm. have been there. I just remember it being really cold and, you know, I don't know, just cold. I, that's that's the only characteristic I can remember. 
I have never been to upstate New York. I have the boroughs. Yep. Upstate. I don't even know what that is. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into it. Again, happy birthday, Ed. In this week's Need to Know, we review I'm Not Yelling, A Black Woman's Guide to Navigating the Workplace by Elizabeth Leiba as part of the Ward and Webster Better You Book Club. So a little bit about the book. I'm Not Yelling provides a strategy for savvy Black businesswomen navigating a predominantly white corporate America. It empowers Black women to find their voice in toxic work environments and succeed. You know, we didn't um, review last week because Bianca was slacking. I own that. And you know what Bianca did? She got this here on audio. <laughs> this book dropped on audio March 28th. <laughs> and it has been in my ear ever since. What a gift. What what a gift. So I am excited to say that I supported um, this here boss black woman twice. Not only did I buy the book, but I also uh, used my audible credit <laughs> to support her as well. Following her on LinkedIn now, which she references quite a bit in the book. And yes, her LinkedIn presence is dope. So before we get into it, a, a little bit about the author. Um, Elizabeth Leiba is a writer, college professor, and advocate for Black business women. She has over 100,000 followers on LinkedIn who range in age, race, background, and location, and are primarily, primarily located in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Her passion for Black history changed her life and catapulted her into a fulfilling line of work as a powerful advocate of social justice and equity for Black women, especially business women. Elizabeth strives to create resources which support, empower, and amplify Black businesswomen and their businesses. Did you invite her on this show and she just not come? Or what, what's the status? Because she's not here. She isn't here. And <laughs> I chickened out and didn't invite her. And I'm usually bolder and like in people's DMs. But I was like, oh, she's so dope. Is she going to come on this foolish? But you oh know God. what I decided? Oh Wait. <laughs> Because I commented on her on a post that she had on LinkedIn and like she liked it or, or whatever. And I was like, you know what, Bianca, just just shoot your shot. So I am because just because she's not on today doesn't mean that we can't have her on in April. This is true. My favorite uh, chapter in the book is the one she did on code switching. We will get into the into the book yes. here in a second. But I think she might she might appreciate that we're going to drop all breaches and be like, hey, girl, just come on here and kiki with us for 20, 30 minutes. We, we're going to help you sell some books. We love it. Well, I'm speaking for myself. I love this book. Mm -hmm. So come on on. I think I think she she gives me professional woman, but she can get down um, with the get down. So I don't I don't think it would be a problem. She definitely gives me approachable. I had also posted, and that's why I just, I'm like, Bianca, you missed your opportunity because I also had posted in one of our stories that this was the book and I had like a picture, da, 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 and she had liked it and reposted it. And I think I had sent her a message and she had responded. So I literally had the opportunity, but then, I don't know, I chickened out, but I really could be like, and we're both Jamaican. <laughs> Anyway, let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. You have here being a black woman in the workplace. Is that is that for me? I thought that before we even get into the book, 
I just wanted to start, Bianca, before we get into Elizabeth's book about how difficult and fraught, and she touches on so many fault lines in the book, mm -hmm. of just what it is to be a Black professional woman in 2023, and how everything you do, everything you say, everything you put on your person literally is second-guessed, and that is not how you should have to behave and act to go to, to, to earn a living. That's just, first and foremost, it's fucking absurd. <laughs> literally to the point of how you wear the hair that grows out of your head. So I thought before we get into the book, I want to just acknowledge that the environments that Black women work in, particularly in spaces that are majority white, mm -hmm. are unhealthy as fuck and not <laughs> um, affirming at, in the least. And just before we even got into the book, I thought it was important to just call that out and to name it. Um, mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I learned from Elizabeth's book is to do just that. Just that listening to listening to the book and just kind of diving into it really had me thinking a lot about my own vocational journey and up until i will say the majority of my career i have worked in predominantly black spaces right so there was definitely some things where i was like I don't know if if this is really part of my story. Even so, there were moments where I was like, no, no matter where I was working, yes, I was catching this shit, <laughs> especially um, some of it from from black men. So a lot of that, a lot of that definitely landed for me throughout the book where I was like, yep, I've seen that. Ooh, microaggressions, yep. Or just other times um, in my life. I felt like her, the chapter on hair, and we'll get into all these things, but I felt like the chapter on hair specifically, I felt that most in my adolescence, growing up in predominantly white spaces, um, elementary, junior high, high school, more so than in my adult life. But I definitely know some of the trials and tribulations that my mother had in witnessing my mother's navigate, my mother navigate corporate spaces and issues that did come up about her hair. So there were definitely a lot of times where I was like, yeah, which also just reminded me that although I've worked in work with Black folks in Black spaces, how we adapt white supremacy work culture. And so I think there are definitely that was showing up more so in, in a lot of my, in a lot of my experiences. You know, we've touched on it a few times on this show. I think it seeps into our subconscious Bianca without us really knowing. And I think we did a segment on like adopting language that is not really intended for us and how sometimes we use phrases and we don't even know where they came from and we're perpetuating certain things that we don't really intend to perpetuate. It, it would be impossible to live in a culture such as it is and to not adopt some of those bad behaviors. Just like, you know, you can be an openly gay person and still have to struggle with internalized homophobia because you live and navigate in an environment that is not always affirming. And that's just, it is what it is. So let's get into the book. Um, when I saw the chapter on hair, I was like, well, Bianca's clearly going to want to talk about this. I thought it was fun. My favorite chapters were four, five, and six. I wanted to start with four, if we can, Bianca, on the code. So chapter four is code switching and other exhausting behavior, where she examines kind of like the code switching that we all have to do, and then how over time that just becomes exhausting. And I actually want to read for the wonders some things that Elizabeth said here, because I thought it was great. I'm on page 115. And Bianca, this is where she's talking about how she was doing this work with some universities, with um, true peers, gathering some information, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I'm on 115. 
In 2020, we interviewed college and university presidents across the country about their plans, how they were accommodating students and addressing the digital divide, and on a variety of other topics. We spoke to high-profile leaders from colleges like Spelman, the University of Florida, Howard University, and more than 100 others. It was exciting to be considered a thought leader in my field. However, there was a part of me that still felt a sense of trepidation every time I logged on to our Zoom calls to interview another university leader. One evening, I was chatting about the show on the phone with one of my co-hosts. Um, she was referring to a podcast. Right before we hung up, he hesitantly shared something he had observed. He described how at ease and comfortable I was in our phone conversations, how easily I laughed, and how genuine and authentic I appeared in our interactions. Continuing here, this is Elizabeth talking. He contrasted it with how very reserved and tentative I act with guests on the show, as though I was afraid of saying the wrong thing. I didn't laugh or appear at ease. I was always serious. He never explicitly said he wanted me to speak the way that I did with him. He just said, quote, I wish you were with them the way you are with me, end quote. Bianca, I took a lot of notes throughout um, reading the book. I highlighted some things. I have some notes here of things I wanted to talk to you and the wonders about. This was the first time I took a notation. This is in chapter four because I was like, oh, this is, this is as real as it gets. I mean, this idea that when you are with, with a colleague and you work with them over time, and I think you and I, you and I can, from our own experience, when we first met, we were one way with each other. And then over time, it got warmer and more loose. And we're both people of color. We're both from, the, from similar socioeconomic backgrounds. We have similar moral codes. But when you are meeting someone in the professional space, the safest thing for you to do is just to be dry and professional because nowadays anything can be misconstrued to mean, oh, well, Bianca's unprofessional or Bianca's did this or Bianca did that. And so I get it. And so, you know, until you know people, I expect you to show up on Zoom and give them cardboard Susie. That's all they're going to get because that's the only safe thing to give them. And if people find you boring, oh, well, they won't be able to say you're unprofessional. Yes and yes. I think the code switching chapter reminded me that or made me wonder how, quote unquote, authentic I am <laughs> when I am, especially when I'm meeting people for the first time, because I like to pride myself on the fact that this is Bianca, like this is who I am. But, but it's not. One, you want to get more comfortable and build rapport with people over time. But I think it's just interesting how the safe the the safe way to be is to automatically assimilate to what is is deemed uh, appropriate or the code switching. And I love that she had this chapter because I was like, we did a whole segment on this. And she talks, she even talked about how code switching, like why we do it and and that it's for some of the same reasons that we brought up, right? For, for safety, et cetera. She mentions, and I can't remember where, but she also had mentioned that she had been doing it for so long that once she once she stopped just that transition from in person to zoom she was like she stopped using her high pitched nasally valley girl voice <laughs> angela as she remembered <laughs> oh my from, god oh my I god i know that sounds tickled <laughs> you know who i was thinking about <laughs> i know <laughs> She, she said, and they were getting, you know, they were getting who she was. She talked about her Southern drawl and just being like, no, like 
what does it really mean to show up in the workplace exactly who we are? Yes. And when she was telling that story about Angela, I thought of my mom, because I think I've shared this with you on the show before. Like my mom, I can remember so many instances when I was growing up and my mom would be cursing us out, cursing us out. The phone would ring. She would pick up the phone, Bianca. She'd be like, hello. And I'm like, but wait a minute. Who that? Who is she? Uh-huh. And so before I even knew the name of code switching, like I was seeing it in real time because my mom would just step outside of herself on a dime and be this whole other person on the phone. And I was like, okay. Until she knew now, depending on who the phone, who was on the phone, it was my aunt or her mother or whatever, then maybe the mask would fall. But until she knew who she was talking to, they were not going to get what we were getting in the household. So I, it, it was clear to me. I want to talk about the very next pages after she talks about this experience about um, her, her coworker calling her out. She mentions George Floyd and she talks about how false arrest plays into this idea that we have to can keep up these facades and, and kind of be the good person, despite the circumstance. Make a long story short, she was falsely arrested and she was taken to jail. And she talks, Bianca, in the book about how her mom shows up at the jail and was really kind of taken aback at her reaction to being arrested because she was, she was innocent. I'm going to read to you what Elizabeth wrote in the book about this. This is on page 118, Bianca. To add insult to injury, I had a receipt for the item I was accused of stealing with me the whole time, but I was still arrested, handcuffed, taken to jail, booked with uh, mugshots and fingerprinted. None of my compliance and quote unquote good behavior, which I had hoped might evoke some type of sympathy or lead to redemption, had stopped an injustice from happening to me. It began to become crystal clear to me that my attitude towards the safety and security I was seeking by assimilating, toning myself down and trying to be quote unquote, one of the good ones and code switching to be more acceptable was entirely flawed. So, oh my God, the light bulb went off. So here she's using this false arrest to make the point of we're in these workspaces. We think that if we quote unquote, tone ourselves down, if we talk the way they want us to talk, oh, we're going to get ahead. No, 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 no. You're not going to get ahead. They're going to drag your black ass to jail, receipt in your pocket and all. And Mm -hmm. you're just going to be the polite person in jail as opposed (laughs) to the belligerent person in jail. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, Elizabeth, you're right. So you you remember when I was saying to you a couple months ago, just be yourself, whatever yourself is. And if people think that you're being unprofessional, whatever, that you're better off in the long run doing that, as opposed to taking on all of their trauma and their ish, I feel like that was her way of making that point. She's like, why am I going through all of these exercises to quote unquote, be acceptable to these people when at the end of the day, they still see me as a black woman and they still put all that ish onto me. If all of the body cameras and the, the videos of police shooting and and murdering black people has meant enough, one thing that it has taught and proved that it does not matter it doesn't, it doesn't matter how we interact. It doesn't matter if we are quote unquote, one of the good blacks, <laughs> we are still, we are all the same. The point that, you know, she, cause, because the story of her um, getting arrested comes up a few times, but the, but the fact is like, she was like, I was doing everything right. 
And that is, I think, especially in the workplace, that is how we, how we move through it, right? Like we want to do, we want to do everything right. We want to, we don't want to be seen as lazy. We want to show up on time and early and stay late. And we want to give, 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 and, and take on all of the other duties as assigned, no matter what, <laughs> But at the end of the, to, to prove ourselves, to prove our worth, to, to prove that we are not, again, quote unquote, what they think we are or whatever stereotypes or whatever. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So Bianca, chapter five is called Afros, Locks, Twists, and Braids, mm-hmm. The Politics of Natural Hair. I'm going to mute my microphone and let you get us started here. The fact that, and I've known about the Crown Act for quite some time. One of the things that I appreciate about this book is that she brings um, receipts, literally and figuratively, historical <laughs> historical documents, the sightings, child, the footnotes are abundant, <laughs> the history. And so I have known about, about the Crown Act for some time and the fact that there even has to be laws in place preventing the discrimination of of how black women wear their hair is is an issue within it within itself but one of the things that she she talks about um, in the book I'm on page 139 she said rather than concluding that white women and others in the majority found my hair distasteful or unprofessional when I entered the workplace I started looking at the historical evidence that they found it intimidating. Based on the history of their interactions with Black women's hair, white women had typically been jealous or envious of our hair. That's why they tried so hard to control it, other it, and insinuate that we should assimilate our hair to look like theirs to be accepted. This knowledge created a level of acceptance of my beautiful coils I had never had before. My glorious puffy halo wasn't anything to be ashamed of. People's reaction to it, particularly white women, wasn't my concern. I was like, I had never thought of white women, of the the jealousy factor. So, so growing up, I, <laughs> my mother, we need to have a whole section conversation about hair. My mother put a relaxer in my hair when I was very young. I was a toddler the first time my hair was straightened. My mother was, I don't know, I would like to say young and didn't know no better, but here we are. She wanted my hair to be, quote unquote, more manageable, okay? So she put that there, lie in my hair. (laughs) And I relaxed my hair until I was about 15 years old, and then I shaved it all off. But I remember, would remember going to school and especially white girls would be like, oh my gosh, I love your hair. Can I touch it? Like if I had braids or what have you, can I touch it? Oh, I wish my hair could do that. Do you think it could, you know, that whole, that, that fascination with it to the point where I didn't understand then like I do now. Cause now I'd be like, fuck no, you can't touch my hair. If you don't get about a face, Becky. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't know then what I know now. And so once I had cut off my hair and that's when I also understood Black women and our own self-hate of our hair because what we had been taught, because when I shaved off all my hair, when I, when I got back to school, I was in high school and I got back to school, it was the 
black girls who were like, how could you? And your hair is your glory and you look like a boy and now it's natural. What are you going to do? It was all of that that negativity that I was like, yo, this is, and then when I started to grow my hair natural and then later locks, but it was other black women who were relaxing their hair and who had been for years who were telling me that the hair that grew out of my head was wrong. And so, because we had been, I don't necessarily fault them. We, we have been taught and indoctrinated that you, the goal is European features, long, straight hair, whatever it takes for you to get it, whatever the chemicals are, whatever the burning of the scalp and later the cancer, like all of the things that no matter what, this is what you should hope to achieve. And so now I'm like, damn, that is a lot. (laughs) That is a lot to carry and to unpack. 1000%. I have so many thoughts about what you just shared. Number one, I have always been fascinated, Bianca, that, and when I say uh, white people in this context, I'm talking about white people writ large. For as much as white people try to get away from Blackness, um, have you ever noticed how many things they do to look more like us? Tanning beds, being out here in the sun because they want to be, they want a darker skin. They're fascinated by your, your beautiful hair that's on your head. The lips, the butt, (laughs) and the... Everything. It seems to me that y'all try and have all the features we have. So, so what's up with that, sis? Also, um, so um, I'm a bald guy, obviously. And as I was reading this chapter that was intended about primarily Black women and their hair, I was thinking to myself, well, what if I were a Black man in a workspace with locks that were all the way down my back and just how that would be perceived differently? Because as a bald Black guy, I think that that is somehow the default acceptable appearance. Whereas if I had a bunch of hair on my head, there may be a whole nother response and reaction to me. And, you know, I have been bald or near bald my whole life, but I I do have one thing that I think I can relate to in this conversation. I have always had, Bianca, beautiful skin. This will surprise no one because the universe wanted me to be beautiful. (laughs) So it's always been, you know, hydrated, beautiful, just the best, supple black skin. Okay. When I I was younger, Bianca, I kid you not, I went through this phase, I'm going to say from like 20 to 35, where I would meet complete strangers, mostly white people, but complete strangers. They would come up to me and they'd be like, oh my God, your skin is so beautiful. And they would take their hand and put their hand no, ma'am. To, to my face. And no, would, ma'am. every single time it would happen, I would have a reaction. And my friends would be like, Isaiah, why are you overreacting? And I'm like, what do you, a stranger just put their hands in my face. What are you talking about? No, ma'am. I share this story because I think I've never had someone touch my hair that way, but I feel like that's the same reaction that I would have. What stranger just puts their whole hand on your person without being invited to do so? Because they feel, because they think it's beautiful. No, that is something that it, that baffles me. I don't remember where I was and this, (laughs) this white woman, I don't know why I feel like this is when Cliff and I were on the cruise. I don't know, but she came up to me and she was like, I love your dress and started to touch it. And I literally leaned all the way back, friend, why do you feel like you have aged, like you can invade my space and touch my body, face, hair, shirt, whatever. Like I, the, the audacity, the caucasity <laughs> of it, because I would, I would, I would never, 
I see somebody, yes, since your outfit is is gorgeous, but I'm not going up and touching you. Oh, your hair is is lovely, radiant, shiny and glossy and fine. I am not going to, I don't have permission. You know what it reminds me of real quick? Side note though, because people do it, is when people see a pregnant person and want to rub their belly feel like they should be entitled to put their hand on your extended abdomen. <laughs> that is a thing. Get your hand. That is a thing. And I don't understand it. Bianca, um, <laughs> do you want to say that? Did you want to say anything else about the hair? Because I wanted to move us to chapter six, which is literally called I'm not yelling. Let's, because I want to also get to the chapter on mentorship. <laughs> okay, so um, chapter six is called I'm Not Yelling, The Psychology of Microaggressions. And I can make this quick. So Elizabeth is talking about a merger at her company. She is a part of this transition team um, and she's meeting with some other leaders and they're they're, they're working on a, on a merger plan. And, and she is, if not the only, one of the only uh, Black women in the space, even though her boss, and it's important in this particular um, example, her boss is also a Black woman. So this is very typical, Bianca. They're asking for her opinion in this meeting. She offers her opinion and two things happen. Either she's spoke over or cut off or her input is just disregarded. And it's very frustrating for her. And so, you know, she, she sat there, she sat there. And at one point she's like, stop interrupting me. I'd like to finish my thought, please. So she's committed the cardinal sin for a black woman. She spoke up for herself. <laughs> so as Elizabeth tells it, Faces change, the mood changes, people are just shocked, stunned, and dismayed that this Black woman had the temerity to demand respect in this business meeting. So after it was over, her boss, a Black woman, was basically like, hey, sis, I know what you mean, I know what you mean, but uh, this is not, we can't do this. We can't be showing our ass and our slips to these white folks. <laughs> and here's the quote, I'm on page 152, here's the quote that I have that I've been told so many times and I was like, oh my God, Elizabeth, you and I are the same person. This is her boss talking, quote, you need to learn to fix your face. She warned me and Bianca, I had to put the book down and go walk around the corner. <laughs> I, when I tell you, when the reader said that into my ear, I said, oh, Isaiah Webster, the third. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me that, and it's usually not even a black woman had told me that I could quit all my jobs and me and oh. Bianca would be sitting somewhere right now, sipping pina coladas and colada yeah. this and colada that. Fix your face. Your and I was face. like, let me tell you what Elizabeth said next. Quote, I'm on 152. I was disappointed by her scolding. It sounds like you're more, this is Elizabeth talking to her boss. It sounds like you're more concerned with, the, with my behavior than with the person who won't stop talking over me and interrupting me. I'm the victim in this situation. And rather than address his behavior, you're talking to me. That's Elizabeth talking to her boss. And I don't know that, I don't think a single Black person could not relate to that. And the idea that even when you're silent, Bianca, your face has to be comported in a way that's comfortable for other people. They can never be uncomfortable. And what Elizabeth was really talking about in this situation was that the whole time she was being interrupted and her ideas were being discarded, she was uncomfortable. But the moment she spoke up, the moment her face wasn't 100% pleasant, now they're uncomfortable. And they can't be in discomfort for even a moment, whereas she had been discom in discomfort for the whole fucking meeting. When I tell you, <laughs> I heard it and I said, whoop. 
can I, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little bit further into that because she says hearing the, okay, my frustration with her lack of empathy. And again, we're talking about the same, um, situation that she's having with her coworker. My frustration with her lack of empathy was at a boiling point. I felt my heart racing as my voice rose and I began talking faster. Hearing the lack of recognition about why I was upset led to me ending the conversation abruptly. I had always respected her as a leader. As a Black woman, she had worked her way up to the position of vice president within the organization. And as a Black woman, I thought she would be more understanding, but she wasn't. Not at all. Her primary goal was to maintain the status quo as we moved through the process of merging our respective departments. Within a few months, she had left the organization and taken a leadership role elsewhere. This made me, I think I have, I have seen or have been both women. I, I think, or, or I have seen both those situations played out where one, I have been like, damn, I thought, I thought you of all people would have had my back in whatever, you know, whatever the situation was and you didn't. So that, that reminder that all skin folk and kin folk, right? Also, I think when it comes to when I have been in some of those positions, it has been similar where it's older Black, it could be older Black women kind of telling me how to how to behave, get along to keep, you know what I mean? Just, just to, to continue. You want to work here? You want to, this is how you silence yourself. And feeling like they're doing it out of uh, wanting to protect me or mentor or coach me or what have you. And I think that there have definitely been times where Maybe I too, like when I think back, I'm like, damn, have I fallen into that tra- that that situation as well where I have said to someone, I don't know, maybe disregarded their feelings in a way in order to want to protect them. I, I think that, I'm sorry, I think that that's it also. Like I want, because I'm like, no, I want all of my Black folks to succeed. Let me offer some guidance or, or whatever, um, in order to, you know, help them get along here or move up here or how, you know, in, but that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily helpful because I'm thinking, am I, am I silencing them? Am I, am I telling them that these microaggressions and this treatment is, is fine? Like, no, like, I don't, I don't want that either. So much of it, Bianca, is is born out of past traumas. I distinctly remember when I was growing up, my aunts, who are obviously Black, talking to my Black sisters and giving them the advice of, you need to get a job and get you some, you know, seniority. You got to do whatever you got to do to keep this job. And, you know, that's going to be your stability. And if you have to suck it up, suck it up because, that, you know, you want a long-term, you know, good situation. And I think back on why that was the note they would give my sisters and why in particular. And, I, and the only thing I could come up with is from their lived experience, the seniority and the and the security of having a job and having a retirement and all of those things just simply outweighed whatever uh, discomfort you may have had in the workplace. I can't imagine how much ish my mom and my aunts had to put up with that they just kind of swept to the side or like dealt with later at home because they were trying to keep their job and keep their you know their their security. So I so I get it. 
And I think, Bianca, that comes from this place of, you know, if you lose this good, this good job, where quote unquote, I'm using my air quotes, then what? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to pay your rent and all the rest? I also think that you said, and you and I have both been in a position where, you know, we could have been the boss talking to Elizabeth. And I think once you have some agency at like any organization, like let's say you've been there five, six, seven, eight years, you can do more and say more and navigate more in that space than you can if you're in your first or second year. So just because you are quote unquote the boss doesn't mean you have any agency as the boss. And I think the type of boss you are changes as your agency within that space evolves. And so one of the things that I was thinking about as Elizabeth was talking, particularly when she says her boss left shortly thereafter, why did she leave? If she was such a, if she was in such a position of authority, what made her leave that organization? Or was it that she didn't feel like she really had much say? Technically mm -hmm. she was the quote unquote boss, but did it have any real meaning? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This also, just, just this whole concept has me thinking a lot when we do, you know, for the newer wonders, we facilitate a leadership training. And one of, one of the most common things that we hear from, from potential candidates and for people, the cohort members, especially Black women, is they want to find their voice. They want to speak up more in, in meetings. They want to, you know, they have ideas, but, but they don't always, you know, say them or whatever for, for a variety of reasons. Like, like that's often as this common thread of, of finding your voice, wanting to be more confident in the space, wanting to be heard. And it, it's just, even the, the example that you gave about your aunt, your sister's just how often, like historically, we have been taught to be silent, <laughs> literally. That is generational curses. We have literally been taught to be silent in order to keep our jobs, in order to not ruffle any feathers, in order to just, then we're, then other people are taking our ideas, then we're passed up on the opportunities and the promotions, all of these things, because we have taught. And I am at the same time proud to see Black women finding and using their voice after generations of being told to, to be silent. And I don't know, one other thing I'll share, I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but that advice she gave my sisters was not the, that was not the note I got. When I was growing up, I don't recall ever being mm. told to be silent, but the girls mm. were. And it's very, it's very interesting. And I can, I, I'm, I think, I never asked her, maybe I should ask her. I think it was based on her own experience as a Black woman in the workplace, knowing that everything she said was interpreted a certain way, every move she made, and she was speaking, I think, from her own experience. Mm. Yep. Whew. There was <laughs> another part, of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, because Elizabeth talks, and I can't remember what part of the book, though, but um, when she was um, speaking specifically around, like, pay, the, the, the pay gap and, and mm -hmm. pay inequities for, especially between Black women and white women, and, and um, so just men and women. And so she was saying that um, the loss of job, divorce, or illness, how that has a greater financial impact on women than it does for men. And so I think that's another reason why for generations we have been taught to, to keep quiet in order to 
keep our in order to keep our job because financially the impact that it has on us and our families is just greater than it is for men. 1000%. I want to ask you about these reflection questions, but you, there was another part of the book you wanted to talk about with the wonders. Yes, mentorship. So chapter, hold on, um, chapter seven, opening the door, mentorship, sponsorship, and sisterhood. Um, that was one of the chapters, I'll just start. That was one of the chapters that I felt like really stood out for me, I think, as I get older and in my career, the importance of, of mentorship, the importance of seeking wise counsel, the importance of having um, other Black women in my corner that I can look to and learn from. And especially when I, when I had my business, I think I had mentors that I didn't even realize were mentors. I had other Black women, small business women, um, small business owners that I could go to for advice that guided me that offer feedback and I can think of of quite a few and that were just extremely helpful and so I think one of the things that I appreciate is that she even has this chapter that there is an understanding that we cannot especially as black women navigate the workplace alone so what does it look like to have other people in our corner that can that can guide, that can um, champion, that can advocate for us. She also talks about the importance of having more than one mentor. And I think that that's something that um, I think I can say that I have for, for the various stages of my life. There are some married women that I look to for mentorship when it comes to, to marriage or, or motherhood or so not just in the professional space, but in my life. And as I get older, I think I, I seek it out more um, and more intentional as I'm going into this next phase, who are the people that I can learn from? Ever since I, whew, ever since I left my job, <laughs> I've been thinking and reaching out to folks to literally sit down and have conversations with them about what they do and to learn from them. And I think that that has been um, so valuable. And so if, if there are a lot of things I took from the book, but that chapter in particular, I was like, yep, because we can't do this alone. And we, this, that chapter in particular dispelled the myth of like, that we're always in competition with each other, that we have to be, that we have to be competing, that because we have to do whatever we can to protect this seat at the table that we have, that we therefore cannot collaborate, partner with, learn from, and be mentored by other Black women. And I think we are kind of I think we've been kind of taught and conditioned that, all right, there can only be one of you here. <laughs> there can only be one of you at the organization, one of you in leadership. So y'all figure out who it's going to be because it's definitely not going to be both. So don't work to <laughs> together. Don't collaborate. Don't share your ideas with anybody because we're in competition. And I think that that chapter in particular really said, no, we are, we are not. This is, this is what sisterhood looks like. Love it. I don't know that I can add much to that, Bianca, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to say this. 
At the end of each chapter, Elizabeth puts both reflection questions and affirmations. I love the affirmations. I wasn't too keen on the reflection questions. Did you, did you contemplate any of them? And I can just tell you that I appreciated them. I just didn't know why they needed to be so many after each chapter. I feel like she could have cut them maybe in half. There's like 10 almost for each, each chapter. That's a lot of reflection questions. Did you do any of them? I loved them. But there's no way you could have reflected on all the questions. No, but it definitely made me pause to say, you know what these reflection questions are? One, to to just give thought. So as I was listening, I really loved her reflection questions after at the end of the chapter on hair, because that was like, that was, that was, that was almost therapy. Because one of the questions she even had is like, how did you, what was your earliest memories of your natural hair? Do you remember the first time you were aware of your hair and its relationship to your overall identity and appearance? Those questions were like, damn, like, how did we, how did we get here? I think the reflection questions were excellent for not necessarily to digest all in one setting, but I could see them as great journaling prompts. I think they would definitely be good for that. I really like the one on the end, at the end of the mentorship chapter as well, because it just, and actually, I think I preferred the reflection questions more so than the positive affirmations. Like I, mm-hmm. I like them both, mm-hmm. no, but I'm you're not mistaken. a, uh, what? no, you're wrong. <laughs> Cause you don't want to, you don't want to dive deep. <laughs> Let me you just give, you, let me give the wanders. Okay, you know what? Let's let the wanders decide. Here are the positive affirmations in the chapter about hair. Since Bianca, we're just, I'm gonna stick with right where you were. <laughs> Here what she said. These are the affirmations. My natural hair is my crown. My natural hair is beautiful. My natural hair is professional. My natural hair is unique in all its various forms and styles. And she goes on. So I read four, there's 10 of them there. I mean, you could just, you could just make you, you should, you could cut those out and paste those to a, to a mirror every morning as you're getting yourself together and be right in the right space. I love them. Yes. And aren't you the one always wearing a t-shirt with some sort of like affirmation written across it in big, bold text? I do like, you know, I do like a statement across these here todays, but (laughs) what I liked about the reflections, I think is just that they were questions or things that I hadn't thought about. Either way, I like that she wraps up each chapter with this because it kind of reminds me of um, Rest is Resistance. Like she also had some kind of questions. Trisha Hersey, she also had some some questions and things to think about and kind of some lists in her book as well. And so I appreciate the, um, there was all of this information now here. How do you, how does this relate to you? How do you process this? Um, how does, how have you seen this show up in your life? So I appreciate it both. 215 pages. Did it need to be that long? <laughs> it's actually technically one of our shorter books. It's just because the font is tiny. <laughs> that was a nice, cute way of being diplomatic and not answering my question. So I'm going to put it to you one other time. Did it need to be this long? And I will remind you, you had to switch to the audible because you couldn't read the tiny text. <laughs> the text was so tiny. <laughs> But again, it was one of our shorter books, technically. I don't know if, I don't know if there was, I don't know if there were any chapters that 
I could see removed though. I think she did, like I said, she was bringing receipts and facts and footnotes, okay? So there was a, just a lot of a lot of content, a lot of background information. There were some parts where I was like, okay, this is this is still going, but okay, I understand the you know, how this all ties together. So maybe there was a lot of, maybe there was a lot of that, but I don't necessarily, like the code switching chapter is a must. The mentorship chapter, absolutely. The I'm not yelling, like the whole way she break down, breaks down and, and defines and talks about microaggressions, because I think it's a term that we use so much, but I, I love the way that she was like, this is what it looks like. These are examples. This is how it shows up. So yeah, I don't know if there was anything that I would have removed. I would have just increased that their font, but then that would have made it a much longer book, technically, page-wise. Then the last question I have for you, B, um, and then you may have questions for me, but we always say who should read this book. This might be the one, not the one, but one of the, the books that I might direct my white colleagues to. I just thought it was so good and so like eye-opening that I feel like well-intentioned white professionals who are really trying to learn and sit with and do better, they might benefit from the, these here these here words on these here pages. I can definitely see that. As I see some of the things that she's been repo- reposting on LinkedIn, it has been some, you know, white men, especially like reading the books and like just championing it and and like what they're learning. So I, I could definitely see it being used as part of a, a work book club. <laughs> a work library. Yes. Um, so I would agree with that. I also, though, want this book to be required reading for Black girls who are about to graduate college. Like before you get into this corporate world, these are some things that that you should be aware of and know and consider. Or not even college, just anyone going into Black women going into the workforce, because there were so many things that again, I've been working half my life and didn't even, didn't even realize that I had been experiencing in the way that I had been experiencing it. So if I had these tools, I could have navigated it differently. This book should be required reading for HR professionals. Do you disagree? Absolutely. Yes. And yes. Yes, Yes. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, no matter what, no matter what your background is, if you work in HR at a diverse organization, you need to read this or something, something similar. Mm-hmm. This needs to be part of your uh, DEI uh, <laughs> yes. training. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anything else before we move on, B? It was delightful. Thank you, Elizabeth. Now I'm feeling uh, bold, so I might, I might just see if she want to come on this here show. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving on. From April Fools to Punked, in this week's All the Feel, we look at how tricking people became part of the culture. So as Bianca mentioned at the top of the show, it is April 1st, if you're listening to this episode um, on the day that it came out, which is traditionally known as April Fool's Day. And so Bianca and I, even though we've been doing this show for more than two years now, I don't think we've ever done a segment on April Fool's. And so I was like, let's do a little deeper dive onto this. And so Bianca, in the arc, I'm uh, linking to an article from the historychannel.com. It's the origin and history of April Fool's Day, which I found fascinating. 
because y'all know I love to go down a little rabbit hole on stuff I didn't know anything about. Bianca, I'm going to read for the wonders, the not the first paragraph, but the second one. And let me preface this by saying, the true origins of April Fool's Day is kind of a mystery. Um, the historians aren't quite sure exactly where it came from. And so a lot of this is them kind of piecemealing together what they do know. And so I'm going to read here just two paragraphs from history.com. It says, some historians speculate that April Fool's Day dates back to 1582, when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar, as called for by the Council of Trent in 1563. In the Julian calendar, as in the Hindu calendar, the new year began with the spring equinox around April 1st. People who were slow to get the news or failed to recognize that the start of the new year had moved to January 1st and continued to celebrate it during the last week of March and through April 1 became the butt of jokes and hoaxes, and they were called, quote unquote, April fools. These pranks included having paper fish placed on their backs and being referred to as a April fish. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that French word. Um, and it's, it was said to symbolize a young easily caught fish and a gullible person, end quote. Bianca, before we even get into April Fool's, when I read this, I was reminded how the calendar is made up and how it has changed and has switched shit around. <laughs> like everything about our contemporary culture is made up, <laughs> even the beginning and the end of the year. And I just, you know, it, it reminded me how, you know, so many things from the calendar to so on and so forth, it's just man and woman created and just switched around for their own purposes. Literally time. <laughs> just, just made up, just <laughs> doing whatever um, we want to do. So, but I mean, that seems fairly straightforward to me, like people not knowing what day it is literally. So they were being foolish. And so this is, this is how it started. I, and I also wanted to talk to you about um, just a couple of ways that this shows up. We're going to get into some of our favorite like trickery, whether it be on social media, on punk, on candy camera and all the rest, like in pop culture. But I wanted to share a story with the Wanders and with you, Bianca. I don't know if I ever told you this. I don't know if I, I don't think I told the Wanders, but when I was in college, I was the editor in chief of the college newspaper. Did I ever tell you that? There are, there are multiple things that you have mentioned that I had no idea, but then you just kind of skip over it. <laughs> so that, and then there's something I'm going to ask you about, but I'm waiting to see your birthday segment. Carry on. So, you know, so my background is journalism. I have, that's what my degree is in. So, I mean, it's not a leap to, to know or to guess that I would be involved with the school paper. But anyway, I was the editor of the paper. The name of the paper was the Vermilion. However, every, every first edition of April, they would always do like an April Fool's edition, which they call the Vermin. And I hated it. I hated it. It was this tradition at the university. They would literally, as opposed to doing like their normal edition, they would do a, like a prank paper and like half of the paper would be made up stories. And so the year that I was editor in chief, I didn't do it. I didn't do the vermin because I didn't think that it made sense for us to do. I'm like, we're the school newspaper. We're supposed to be like, I took the job very seriously. And I'm like, why are we putting out a joke paper? Like that's stupid and fuckery and foolish. I'm not going to do it. When I tell you the blowback that we got from the students, from the administration, from the faculty, like how dare Isaiah not put out this vermin paper, it's April Fool's edition and da da da, da. And I was like, wow, y'all really care about this fuckery and foolishness. And I just didn't see like that as the function of the newspaper staff. Like if y'all want to be entertained, <laughs> go to the union, go to, go, to, go to that foolishness. That's not what we're doing over here. I say that to say people really 
hold on to like April fools and like these traditions. And some people get really wrapped up in them to the point where if you try to like move off from that, they don't like it. Um, were you ever into like these sorts of things? Do you, did you watch punk? Did you watch candy? Cam well, candy camera might be before your time. Uh, <laughs> did you get into any of those? I, I did watch punk. What a time. I forgot that that was a thing. And so, and I think they tried to bring it back. Like there's been various iterations of, um, of punk, but it was interesting to get, see celebrities getting really upset <laughs> over, over these here practical jokes. Who, um, what was his name? Who hosted that? Oh, I can see his face. He used to date Denny Moore. Yes. Kosher. Ashton Kutcher. Ash Thing. I'm sorry. Yes. Kutcher. 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 Now sure. married to Mila Kunis. Wait, okay. happened to wait, is he still a, is wait, is he still acting? He is, and he's married to Mila Kunis. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Oh, Shocker. Okay. One of my favorite, I didn't watch Punk, but one of my favorite episodes is when Serena was on there. And um, I think they had either like was. The prank was, I think they had locked like a child in a car. Oh, no, no. The, the, the child started driving the car off the lot and Serena didn't, and Serena was worried that the child was going to like get into a wreck or something. <laughs> and then there was this classic one where they were, where they punked, um, uh, he was not a Backstreet Boy. He was an insinker. Um, the lead one, dated, dated Britney. Justin Timberlake. Where they took all his furniture out of his house. You remember that episode? Wait, it's, a, it's an iconic episode. No. <laughs> Google it. Google it. It might be on YouTube. I like, I remember some of the episodes because some of them were really like out of this world. And I know you they don't were follow. elaborate as hell. They like were they very had elaborate. whole crews working on this stuff. And, um, and I know you don't follow sports, but usually on April 1st, a lot of the sports spoofs come out, like so-and-so got traded to this team or whatever. And it's always made up. And, you know, you just have to remember what day you're reading the new, the, the headlines, because on April 1st, they're going to be like, LeBron signed up with the Raptors or whatever. And it's like, no, he didn't. I remember last year um, when Michael Strahan <laughs> put out those pictures that he had closed up his gap. <laughs> And like, I think he had like had a call with his mom, like FaceTime her or something. That's a um, But just have people, I was like, now, you know, that man is not closing that big ass gap up, but because <laughs> we love our things. But I do, I do remember that one. And then again, it's like, oh yeah, it's April 1st. Like I come, I, when sometimes I see these pranks, I'm like, oh, I forgot that that's, that mm. that's what today is. And that's now, why sometimes. I, I will say this, Bianca, sometimes they go wrong. So I recently saw one on social media where there was um, this fake fight in Walmart and it was a prank. It was a complete prank. So that, keep that in mind as I shared the story. It was like this made up fight. Two people had kind of gotten into this fight and then one of them pretended to pull a gun like on the other person and, it, and mass hysteria, mass hysteria breaks out in the Walmart. People start running and trampling each other. And then you could hear the guy saying, it's a prank, it's a prank. And I was thinking to no. myself, why would you, why would that be the prank? Like you can't yell fire in a theater and say it's a prank. Like this is dangerous. <laughs> and people are literally being shot in stores. So why would we ever think that um, is okay? I'm, I'm hoping that that person went to jail, but you just, but just sometimes it's, some things don't lend themselves to pranks. So I wanted to ask you, do you, are you a prankster? I, Feel like I would know the answer to this if you were. You're not a prankster in the professional space, but are you a prankster in any of the other domains that you kind of roam? 
in my other domains. Um, no, not really. My daughter tries to be. I don't know, cause she, uh, cause she watches all of these terrible YouTube videos of children pranking their parents and she thinks that that's what she should do here and then I want to be like don't do what them white kids do girl because <laughs> you're gonna get put out um so no I'm trying to think if I ever been I don't know but one thing about uh April Fool's that I have been seeing are kind of these public service announcements that usually happen like March 30th and March 31st where it's like the pranks about being pregnant are not funny, <laughs> especially to, cause people, that was like, a, that's a thing that a lot of folks do. Oh, I'm pregnant and pretending to but be pregnant. Be like, one, right? No, because, well, the point that they're making is there are so many folks that are struggling with infertility that that's mm-hmm. not something to, that's, that that's not something to joke about. So just, just to be mindful, like you just never know how your how your joke is going to land and it's not so there's a reggae artist by the name of spice and she she did a whole maternity photo shoot okay belly i mean a whole um and it, the caption was something like thanking god for the blessings something like that this was recent she is not pregnant <laughs> This was, she was like, oh, she didn't want, she was saying it as she was, um, you know, born again or new life because of all of, she had all, had all these health issues and like had almost died. And so she feels like she's being reborn and that's what the pregnancy was supposed to imply. Ma'am, you did a whole lot. <laughs> you, I mean, everybody on social media was like reposting it. Congratulations to Spice. And because she had full maternity shoot. And she was like, oh, I didn't mean to offend anyone. And da, da, da. like, you're doing too much. <laughs> you're doing too what, much. <laughs> what would Richard Pryor say about doing too much in comedy? I don't know what what what, what would Joan Rivers say about doing too much in comedy? What would Chris Rock say about doing too much in comedy? Well, one Spice is not a comedian. She was just doing too much. Wait, who? <laughs> oh, she's Spice. not a comedian. Well, she's the point not. I'm trying to make is comedians say that there's if it's funny, it's funny. Get out your feelings. <laughs> but it wasn't meant to be funny. I don't know what the hell she was doing or thinking. But okay, so go to that. Child, I ain't got time. <laughs> it's it's like yes if it's funny it's funny but also don't be a trash ass human being (laughs) that part the wonders we have a wonderism segment coming up on the last saturday of this month it's the fifth saturday of every every Mm -hmm. every time there's a fifth saturday we do wonderisms so send us in your practical jokes your april fool's traditions and we will uh recount them at the end of the month that'll be on april 29th now I'm going to go on mute because this next segment will be to honor yours truly. I'm so excited. <laughs> or maybe I'll just mute and stay there. In this week's Gotta Do, <laughs> I've been forgetting to read these things before you, <laughs> before I, before I say them, because I'm like, what the hell? In this week's Gotta Do, you must celebrate another trip around the sun for your favorite co-host. <laughs> As Isaiah turns for 40, why are you? First of all, <laughs> this online about your all, age. 
I appreciate you reading the script just as I wrote it. Because when I was writing it out, I wrote the script this week, uh, Wanders, and I was thinking, damn, she's not going to want to read this because I'm giving myself all these superlatives and she thinks she's your favorite host. I appreciate you, Bianca, for being obedient and for reading our script the way it was written. Thank you. Continue. Why? It's been at least like three weeks in a row that you have referenced turning 40. When the wonders know good and well, you are closer to 55. Why was 40 a good year? I get confused with 38 all the time. Now, here's the thing. I, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why I keep having to tell you this on this show because we've had this conversation more than once. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it for the last time. And we're going to leave it alone. You are how old you look. Period. That's it. That's all. <laughs> Nothing else matters. <laughs> Oh, as Isaiah prepares to turn 46, <laughs> I want to ask him <laughs> some questions as you are sliding closer to 50. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to be 50 if I'm being honest with you, because I'm going to look so good for 50. It's not, people are going to, no one's going to believe it. I can't wait. I literally cannot wait. I cannot wait either. <laughs> so in our traditions, you know, there's always there's always some 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 three question situation. And I was thinking about this and I was like, sometimes you just mention random things that I actually want to know more about you. <laughs> so instead of yes, your birthday and and then wonders, you should see this picture of himself that he put in the arc. Why? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> You mentioned, I think it was last year, I don't know, you have glanced over it, that you were in some type of like singing fraternity. What is that about? Tell us about Isaiah the Songstress. I'm glad you asked. So I'm a member of Phi Mu Alpha <laughs> Symphonia Fraternity. It is literally a music fraternity. There's chapters all over the United States. And I, I was initiated into the Delta Epsilon chapter, which is at the University of Louisiana and, and Lafayette. And I think the year I crossed was, ooh, I don't even remember. That's how old I am. But anyway, yes, uh, Find Me Alpha Symphonia. It is a, it is literally a music fraternity. So it's just, you know, as opposed to like one of the traditional social fraternities, the kind of galvanizing point of Find Me Alpha was music. And so it's primarily musicians who are a part of the fraternity, people who are either singers or play an instrument or things like that. And what I appreciated about them was that I've always been musically inclined, but not very good. So when I was younger, I would play the trumpet. I think I played it for like two years and I gave that up. I gave it up when I discovered writing. And so writing became my outlet, but I've always been fascinated by music and musicians. And I wish I had, I wish I had learned how to play the piano when I was younger. And so I really like loved being around these musicians. They were great. Like they were very creative. They were very friendly. And at the university that I went to, I felt comfortable in that fraternity space as opposed to like the traditional social ones and so I had friends that were in it and they were like you should you should rush find me off and I'm like but I'm not in the music department they're like it doesn't matter and so I did it and it was great so so one what do, what does rushing a music fraternity look like <laughs> so so and this do you is what sing Yes, we, we sung as a group as a fraternity we would sing together we would go out actually one of my favorite things is that um, we would practice singing together. We had our Find Me Alpha songbooks and everything. We would actually go out to like um, senior like living facilities and like sing for free to people just to kind of cheer up, to raise their spirits and things like that. We had a sister fraternity called um, 
what was their name? I'm for, I'm blanking on the name. But anyway, we would serenade them. It was this very gender bullshit where the guys would serenade the girls and give them flowers. I'm like, I y'all know I wasn't leaning into that. But we did have a sister sorority that was like the other like the music sorority for the girls. We sung and and there was lots of uh, instrumentalists in the group as well. But in terms of rushing, so because I never did the social fraternities, I don't know the difference because I never had that other experience. So I'm I'm just going to assume that it's the same based on what I know about rushing fraternities, it seems like it's the same bullshit, you know. I, a lot of it I can't talk about because they swear you to secrecy. And if I tell, they'll cut mm. off my foot. So like, I can't reveal. Was there a... I can't reveal anything about the rush process beyond, as you might imagine. That wait, and like to be now. <laughs> and I, wait, I should know this. You're not in a sorority, are you? I am not. Okay, you were, you were not wanted. I was not. <laughs> And that is okay. <laughs> what is one piece of advice that you would give 18-year-old Isaiah? Ooh, that's a very good one. So, you know, I'm very into working out now. It's it's really become a religion, but I didn't pick that up until I was in my, my late 20s. So I lost probably a good 10 years 10 to 12 years where I really could have, you know, had an even better physique, just not in terms of my own appearance, but just looking like looking good. And I would have told myself to lean into that earlier in life because it's easier to maintain and just to um, not just the working out, but all facets of it, like the taking care of your skin, your body, your teeth, your hair, your, your everything. Like, like there's so many things that you just learn, like as you get older, but if you knew them really at 18, you would have been on, a, I think, a, just a, an even better course. That's your body is a temple. Mm. It really is. Treat it as such. That's a <laughs> biblical term. She just used y'all. Hey, because sometimes never knows. mind that she was shacked up with a whole man before she was married to him. But we, this is about me, not her. <clears throat> Mind your business. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly. <laughs> you've learned about yourself over the past year could you repeat that i'm sorry your 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 mic your brand new mic went out it's not the, i'm not using the oh, new one. okay the, wonders the hold on let me lean in one more time wonders <laughs> if it's still starting shitty i tried i tried to purchase a new mic and it was just doing the most so i had to go back to the old one but we're gonna get there and continue to lift it in prayer <laughs> what is one thing you learned about yourself in the past year especially since you have been booed up but go ahead. One thing you've learned about yourself. I think Ed has taught me how to be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more open about my wants, my dreams, my desires, and to just know that you don't have to move through the universe alone. Like I was single for a long time, what, six years going, almost seven years. And you kind of get in like your little ruts and it takes time to kind of get back into the space of sharing, you know, space with another person, sharing your bed with another person, sharing your your thoughts, your fears, your dreams with another person. And, and I feel like I'm still like getting used to that, but having a partner who is like so accommodating, so thoughtful, so supportive reminds me to that it's okay to show those things in return. And so that's what I have uh, learned and relearned in the last year for sure. Definitely in the last six months. We are so grateful for Ed. He literally has made you a better person. Oof, because I don't know. What a time. Uh <laughs> 
as you as you slide closer to 50 do you have uh you said wait that was this is a fourth question you're only supposed to ask me three that's I know, the tradition hold on. Warden Webster. As, you, as you slide closer to 50 are you already making 50th birthday plans yes of course you know now bianca where are we where are if we you know anything to? about me you know it's gonna be planned out years in advance the engraved announcement template is already being considered <laughs> we don't do anything last minute over here oh where are where are we going? I d- I know I didn't get your get to make it to your fortieth fifth because of course you planned it during the time of my child's birth. Um. <laughs> unless I change my mind, and I might because I have four whole years. Unless I change my mind, we are going to the motherland. Yes, because you said we were going to go to South Africa, right? Yes, yes, yes. We are going to Africa. <laughs> And you know, we were at, you and I were at a dinner function a few months ago or last month or what have you. And, and some of the guests were talking about their, their South Africa trip, which made me say even more, yep, I gots to go. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I'll start, I'll start putting away my uh, money for that. I have what, four more years. We're going to make that happen. I like it. So Isaiah Webster, the third, we are grateful for your existence. We are thankful that the universe and God has seen fit (laughs) to give you one more trip on this rotating rock. Happiest birthday to you. All right. I am happy to announce the book for April for the Ward and Webster Better You Book Club for the month of April, the iconic month of April. Uh, April's the best month on the calendar, if you did not know. Drum roll, please, Bianca. Actually, oh, mic, January, really is, the, January Wait, really is the best month. January. Oh my God, we're not doing I'm cutting all this. <laughs> I mean, April. Carry on. I can't drum roll. It's not picking it up. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> It's called Do It Today, Overcome Procrastination, Improve Productivity, and Achieve More Meaningful Things. Published in 2018, Darius Faroe is the author. Here's the description of the book. Are you also tired of putting off your dreams until tomorrow? Guess what? Tomorrow never comes. Am I right? I've procrastinated and put off my desire to write a book for a decade. I always came up with excuses like, quote, it's not the right time, or quote, I need to do more research. Back in 2015, I got tired of this endless procrastination and finally took action. Six months later, my first book was published. Look, we all have limited time on our hands and we're all getting closer to death every single minute. That shouldn't scare you. That should motivate you. Bianca. Oh my God, we are getting closer to death. Now I'm sad. <laughs> I love that. When I saw that line, I was like, you know what? I think this, that little window into his like sense of humor, his sense of approach is probably what I would appreciate. This book is only 169 pages, which I think is the perfect length for something like this. Bianca and I both feel as though we tend to put things off that we want to do even when we were thinking about starting this podcast two years ago, we had talked about it for six months before we did it. And so this book, I think, is a good reminder, not only to us, but maybe to the wonders to just do it. Just take the leap of faith. And so we'll see what this author has to say. He's published quite a few books. Um, Again, this book is a few years old, but it's very highly rated. The reviews were really good. And so I thought, why not spend April talking about how we can improve our own productivity and do the things we want to do, uh, which is what this book is about. So again, it's called Do It Today, 
overcome procrastination, improve productivity, and achieve more meaningful things. We will be reviewing the book on April the 29th. All right, let's get on out of here. All right, as usual, you want to make sure that you are rating, following, and leaving comments on all the episodes for this podcast on all the places where you listen to it. Make sure you follow us, hashtag Warden Webster, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. It's what you got to do. You got to do that. And be sure to let your friends and coworkers and colleagues know about all the good content that you're picking up over here on this iconic, I tell you, iconic podcast. Visit wardenwebster.com every Saturday morning for new episodes of this show where my audio sounds great and Bianca's, well, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Anything else, B? Why must you be so annoying? <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> oh. On that note, I am 40-year-old Isaiah Webster. You are not... I am Bianca, wishing Isaiah a happy 46th birthday, Ward. <laughs> Bye. We are back.